Siempre que te pregunto que cuando, como y dónde, tú siempre me respondes, quizás, quizás, quizás. Y así pasan los días y yo desesperado y tú. Tú contestando, quizás, quizás, quizás. Estás perdiendo el tiempo pensando, pensando. Por lo que más tú quieras, hasta cuándo, hasta cuándo. Y así pasan los días. Desesperado Y tú Tú contestando Quizás 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 Así pasan los días y yo desesperado y tú, tú contestando, quizás, quizás, quizás. Estás perdiendo el tiempo pensando, pensando por lo que más tú quieras. Hasta cuando, hasta cuando. Y así pasan los días. Y yo desesperado. Y tú, tú contestando. Quizás, quizás, quizás. Quizás, quizás, quizás. Quizás, quizás. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn, and I'm joined, as always, by Neve. Hi, everyone. I'm Neve. Uh, we watched the best fucking movie ever made this week. Um, but before we get to that, did you see any? Did you watch any other movies in our week? Uh, between episodes. <laughs> um, yes, I watched two movies. Um. So the first one was this little-known film uh, called Return of the Jedi. Have you heard of this one? Terrible movie. <laughs> That's not true. Um, it's my least favorite of the original trilogy, but I don't think it's terrible. Yeah, I I do think it's probably the worst. Um, although, I don't know, there, there, there are parts of it that I ended up enjoying. Um, yeah, as... You know, as always, this is part of Emily and I watching through all the Star Wars movies in in universe chronology, just to like see what that experience is like because we've never done it before. Um, even though, like, so the the trilogy we've both seen a ton, like the original trilogy, um, and we've seen the prequels a, a decent number of times, and then basically the new movies we've only ever seen once in theaters, like when they came out. So 
we we are getting to those next but yeah we watched return of the jedi um we have a cat trying to break in <laughs> of course so the cat this is lem lem was napping in the laundry because i recorded in in my closet um and emily was like can you please take lem and put lem in bed because emily's going to bed and I was like, Lem is not going to stay and it's just going to annoy me. Whereas if I, we just let Lem sleep in the laundry, it'll be fine. Um, and I was correct. So here's Lem being an annoyance. Please just nap in the laundry. Okay. <laughs> He's biting me. <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know how much I have to say about it. Um it's funnier than I think I I kind of remembered. Um I feel mm. like it's it's more of a comedy than the other two. Um including just like like one of the my favorite bits watching it this time is just when C3PO like live produces an audiobook of Empire Strikes Back for the Ewoks. <laughs> Um, it was just an entertaining scene. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming people have seen it. Um, it was... I guess I have, I have a take about, um, Return of the Jedi that I think is like tied into the stairwell in that movie, I guess. In yeah. A way. So, well, so for me, the main stairwell I don't know if you will differ here. The main stairwell is the one that like goes up to Emperor Palpatine and it's when like Luke goes and honestly it like makes up a large part of the the latter part of the film um is like intercutting back to like Luke with Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader um and Darth Vader and Luke dueling and like dueling up and down the stairs and under the stairs and mm-hmm. then um, Emperor Palpatine eventually, like, electrocuting Luke, and then Darth Vader throws. Spoilers for this super old movie that I'm sure most people have seen. Um, Darth Vader throws Emperor Palpatine into a, um, like, random tunnel hole. Uh, there's a lot of pits in this movie. <laughs> um <laughs> But the mechanical pit in this movie, um, and Emperor Palpatine just, like, turns into a blast of energy. Um, yeah. So, I, I rated it a B plus just to, like, get the stairwell rating here, just because I feel like, actually, those stairs were fairly prominent. Um, I felt like they could have used them a little bit more, and also they could have been a little bit more ornate. Um, mm-hmm. Like, they're kind of just, like, metal steps leading up um a lot of the environment looks better than the stairs so Mm. but i still felt like it was a b plus it was the best use of stairs in any of the star wars movies that we've seen so far so i yeah so my general feeling about return of the jedi is that um everything uh what am i looking for here like everything in that throne room scene is great. Everything yeah. with Luke and Vader and, and Palpatine 
is legitimately great. Some of my favorite stuff in Star Wars. Probably my favorite, probably my favorite part of Star Wars is that. Everything happening with Luke in that part of the movie. Um, the rest of the movie is a really bad rapper for all those things. Cause that, that part of the movie is 40, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And, yeah. you know, these are, two two and a half hour spectacle movies so it's just padded out with so much stuff that i don't care about <laughs> you know and it's not that i'm you know i feel that the ewoks are too childish or you know whatever like i i don't care that it's a movie meant to sell toys i don't care that like um, it's sillier. I don't. None of that matters to me. What matters to me is that none of that stuff is interesting or fun to me. You yeah. know, <laughs> um, like the jokes don't land most of the time for me. Yeah, so. yeah. That was the the big thing as I was watching it, and like watching through this time, I'm like paying more attention to them as movies and not just as like things that fire nostalgia brain within me. Um, uh-huh. And that was where I noticed, like, oh, I think this is actually supposed to be a pretty, like, I think this is supposed to have a lot of jokes in it, um, and most of them aren't landing, and then the parts that I'm laughing at are parts that I don't think are necessarily a joke. Um, like, there's another stairwell where it's Princess Leia, um, like, as the bounty hunter going to free Han from Carbonite, um, and we sort of see, like, a stairwell going up, and there's, like sort of a cross path so there's like a hallway that comes out into the middle of the stairs um Mm -hmm. and it's a fairly wide set of stairs and yet she walks all the way across to the other side where there's like um wind chimes basically hanging and like runs into it and it makes sound and then has to like stop it and i'm just like you literally didn't like it was right in front of you you didn't have to just, like, completely cross. You could have gone down the other side of the <laughs> stairs that you were, like, already on. I don't understand any of this. Um, and I laughed at that because I was just, like, clearly it's just there of being, like, oh, I need to be quiet. But it it was so, like, obviously set up. Um, it, yeah, that just amused me. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I know a complaint that so many people have with, with Return of the Jedi and stuff is just that, like... Like, as a, a character who matters for, like, the war efforts, Han Solo is just, like, who really cares um, if, like, just what you're trying to do is win a war? Um, but for me, watching through this time, I think so much of the original trilogy in particular, and then also the way that it, like, gets reframed by the prequel stuff, is about how, like... You know, a a lot of the stuff that's going on in the prequels are people telling Anakin Skywalker of, like, you shouldn't have attachments to people, you shouldn't care about people. Um, And, like, actually being told that by, like, Yoda and all of these other Jedi is, like, what drives him to not be able to figure out how to deal with his emotions in a constructive way and turns to the dark side. Um, Mm -hmm. And the thing where he, like, finally turns on Palpatine and, like you know, quote unquote, brings balance to the force or whatever. Like I, there's a common read that that's the moment where Anakin finally does that, um, is like throwing Palpatine and turning him into energy blast. Um, is specifically Darth Vader being like, 
I have this attachment to this son who, like, even though he's been estranged from me, is my son. And I'm, like, now seeing as you're, like, abusing my son and, like, trying to turn him to the dark side that actually, like, all of this sucks. Um, And so, specifically, like, Darth Vader throwing Palpatine into the, you know, like, quote-unquote killing Palpatine. Um, We'll get there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Is, like this moment of him being like, no, I actually have an attachment to this person and I'm going to save them. Um, which is also the thing that like Luke and Leia and everyone has been trying to do in both empire strikes back and, um, even more in return of the Jedi. Um, and is kind of this like refutation of like, no, actually it's, is good to care about people and try to save them. Um, and so that's why for me, I don't mind so much that it's like, yeah, the first part of this movie is like, we need to go rescue Han because it's like, well, yeah, to me, the point of this movie is like, no, actually you should ha- like care about people and want to take care of people. Um, this actually is like a, a good thing to do. So, um, you know, also from my, my current reading now of, um, Han and Leia did have something and then were fighting for most of Empire Strikes Back. Um, the Han trying to like, Han, Leia being like, I love you. And Han being like, I know feels far more like the fight is still kind of happening. And then the like resolution after being unfrozen from Carbonite. I don't know. Just reading it that way has made all of that stuff make more sense to me. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm asserting this is the, my, my like reading of what's happening in these movies with Han and Leia is that between a new hope and empire strikes back, they started dating empire strikes back. They are fighting about how Han thought that it was more serious. Leia doesn't really seem to care. Um, and then the whole thing with Leia coming to rescue him is being like, no, actually I do really care about it. You, I'm, I'm sorry that I was like acting like I don't care. Um, and like trying to be like, no, let me just focus on this other war effort stuff and not the people in my life. Because so again, the whole point of Empire Strike or um, Return of the Jedi to me is just like, no, actually, it is good to care about the people in your life, um, even right. if it doesn't like make strategic sense. Um, right. So, yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed it, but again, like like you, I think it's probably my least favorite of the the original trilogy. Um, I do like that they like varied stuff up and did a, a forest planet for this one, but um, they do kind of just spend too long in there and don't do enough interesting stuff with it. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I watched another movie, about... but but yeah, maybe you want to talk about Lady Snowblood first before I talk about mine, my second. Okay. Um, so Lady Snowblood is the best movie ever made. <laughs> um, it, so I was, um, I was scrolling Criterion Channel to, like, try and, like, I was trying to scope out, like, stuff that might be interesting to cover on the podcast. I didn't really intend to watch a movie at all. Um, but I... I was a. It was funny because I was explicitly looking for like, you know, we've done a fair number of Japanese movies and we've done a fair number of like 
European movies, and I was trying to find, like, movies from cultures that we, like, from filmmaking cultures that we hadn't covered yet, um, just to, like, you know, change things up, just to, like, you know, make things more interesting, and I'm scrolling, I, I've got criteria, and I've got, I, I'm sorted it by country, and I'm, I'm not, I'm in the Japan section, and I'm trying to mostly just scroll past it quickly. But I see this thumbnail of a lady in a very cool dress covered in blood, and I was like, <laughs> well, tell me more. <laughs> uh, and so I, like, click it, and it's like, the inspiration for Kill Bill. This is a classic of the revenge genre. I'm like, ah, shit. I don't want to watch the fucking Kill Bill movie. Fuck this. But... Um, I was like, I got two hours before work. This is a 90 minute movie. What the fuck? I'll just do it. Uh, I put it on and, um, I feel that, um, there are a lot of people who deserve it more, but I would also like to exact revenge upon, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Um, (laughs) I feel he is a terrible man. Um, I feel that, uh, I've been ripped off. Uh, I can't believe I ever thought Kill Bill was a good movie. Uh, Lady Snowblood is the best fucking movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) He just, he just ripped the whole thing off wholesale and did it so much worse. (laughs) Lady Snowblood's like about things and interested in like women's experiences in a way that like I don't think tarantino ever could be because i don't think that he thinks women are people um yeah the the one uh, nice thing i can ever say about about quentin tarantino is that i think sometimes he has inspired someone to watch the movies that he is pulling from um and when people go and watch the movies that he's pulling from that's good so the fact that he sometimes inspired people to go oh i should look into like lady snowblood and some yakuza movies now that I've watched Kill Bill, is like okay, that's the that's the one good outcome from watching Kill Bill is that you go, oh, l- let me watch some like sixties and seventies Japanese movies. <laughs> I mean, like yeah, like so I you know I am a film person because I saw Pulp Fiction at an impressionable age and I was like I didn't know movies could be like that. I'd only ever seen you know like. um summer action movies and animated movies as a kid i was like very young and i saw pulp fiction and i was like holy shit i've never seen a movie like this before um it's just trash uh i don't want to belabor the point i don't want to talk about tarantino too much more um i guess i only wanted to say that like i guess it was disappointing that you know from this sort of marketing point of view lady snowblood is not a sort of classic movie unto itself it is not um this incredible piece of filmmaking unto itself it is um it can only be marketed now in the context of this is the movie that inspired kill bill it's so much better than kill bill yeah. it's one um it is inventive. It is doing new and unique things, whereas uh, Kill Bill is just doing um, shit that Tarantino saw in other movies. 
Uh, I just think it's about things. I think like an hour into this 90 minute movie, they introduce um, a character who is like making a manga about the ex, like the, the revenge fantasy that um, Lady Snowblood is like living. Um, And like the movie in one scene pivots to this sort of like self-reflexive thing about how women um are traumatized so the whole movie is about you know the sorts of like trauma that women endure in like day-to-day society and wouldn't it be nice to like cut loose wouldn't it be nice to um like you know get back at the people inflicting this trauma that's what the movie's about and then an hour in it is also ah but you are watching the movie that is about how nice it would be. And, you know, the target audience is not just women. The target audience is all, you know, all sorts of people who maybe are just here to enjoy a woman suffering and enjoy, like, women being raped. Like, that is, like, the part of the audience for this movie. And it is, like, self-reflexive about how it, you know, is selling to you women's pain. Um... It's a fucking incredible movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I, because all that's happening, right? Like, I think it's a movie about things. Also, it is a movie where roughly every six minutes, someone becomes a just, like, fountain of blood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I was so excited when you were watching this movie, because it, it's, like, this is one that we might do at some point. Um um, we're going to do this at yeah. some point. <laughs> um, like one of the things is that I just know that we're doing a lot of Japanese movies because I'm doing this like Yakuza film project thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of it is like when I'm not picking a Yakuza film, I don't want to just immediately be picking like, well, now let's watch Dreams or something. Um, mm-hmm. Especially since we already did uh, Kurosawa Akira and then also you picked Akira. Like we... <laughs> Hmm. I, i'm just like i i'm not gonna pick stuff that's like more on the edge because th- that's the other thing is that lady snowblood to me is kind of on the edges of yakuza stuff um like this is really... it definitely it doesn't feel like it's to me it doesn't feel like it's ripping off battles without but it mm-hmm. does feel extremely one year later and extremely contemporary to it of like you know battles without is sort of like opening up the doors of like what these like very traditional genre movies can be and like trying to experiment a little more and lady snowblood feels like similar sorts of experimentation it feels very contemporary to battles without so yeah um and battles without would would go on to like codify a genre more um whereas like lady snowblood is still a, a really good example of this like more vengeance um version that that i think Mm -hmm. like has this offshoot because it is still dealing with like assassins and um like it's kind of this period uh to some degree and you know it like it's playing around a lot with with some of those elements um but it is doing it in a different way and in a way that i think um to to some degree uh in interesting ways and i think also in some ways that like collapsed what i actually find interesting about the movie lady snowblood i think also went on to like influence some of the more um 
like exploitative V cinema stuff that would come after um, V cinema mm-hmm. being like the, the direct to video market in Japan, which um, I think it's like a little bit more respected than like direct to video in the U S um, mm-hmm. like, you know, um, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Um, Mike Takashi like does a bunch of V cinema. That's like where he got to start. And, a lot of his movies that are, are well-respected movies were V cinema. We're going to watch the dead or alive movies. Those were V cinema. Those came out like they just went straight to like VHS. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think like you can see how this movie points towards this more like exploitation cinema um, version of it, where it is more focused on like, you know, trauma and women's pain or whatever um but i also you know it's been a little while since i've seen the movie but i do remember it being more interesting than about that than um some just like straight exploitation stuff that i've seen so yes um, but also like it must be said like it really delivers on like the exploitation cinema stuff that i came to it for like yeah you know, there we, is a scene... We will get to the first Dead or Alive. <laughs> there is a scene where um, Lady Snowblood is exacting her revenge uh, on somebody, and that person gets away only to hang themselves because they're so scared of Lady Snowblood. And upon seeing that that character has hung themselves, uh, uh, Lady Snowblood cuts her body in half anyway, just to, like drive the point home and yeah. the, the the like the the bottom hat like the legs just come right off and there's blood everywhere um you know like six feet away is like a room filled with like eight dead guys and they're just like geysers of all fucking volcanoes of blood everywhere like it it i, I watched the movie because i saw a lady in a pretty dress um covered in blood and the movie delivered on that, you know? It's <laughs> yeah. what I wanted. It's <laughs> what I got. Um, so, do, yeah. Do you have a stairwell for this? I don't. I thought of it, like, way too late in the movie. I was like, oh, I gotta talk about this on the podcast. Did I, did I see a stairwell? Um, I, I, don't, I don't recall. I'm sure there was one. I don't recall. Um, so, that's on me. Yeah. Um, so the other movie that I watched was Emma. Um, let me, let me like pull this up just so I can make sure that I have some of this information correct. Um, but so, um, I first just kind of saw, so I follow the music box Twitter account. Um, and so there were some tweets, uh, at the time that they were showing Emma about this movie, um, and I remember just like kind of seeing some of those and being like, oh, that looks, that looks interesting. Like, you know, I remember seeing it and being like, wow, I wish this was what was showing instead of I carry with me because it looks more interesting, <laughs> but, um, not looking too much into it at the time. Um, especially because, you know, I, it was nice to go back to a theater, but I'm like still not ready to just go to a theater a bunch. Um, yeah it was we we got like the one week where it was like fine and there was only other like six other people there and then it felt immediately not fine anymore you know yeah 
Yeah. Like, like two weeks later, it was like, oh, I'm not going back to a theater again for a while, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, And also just like, I don't know who I would go to this with. And normally I like going to a theater with someone anyway. Um, And during a pandemic, just going alone to a theater just feels really like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But so I kind of put it on like my to watch list um, and was recently looking into it again. And, you know, we, we kind of talked about this, but um, my expertise in terms of like film studies is um, especially Japanese film, Icelandic film, and then also to some degree like uh, Central European and especially Polish film, um, because one of my, my main professors is like focus was Polish national cinema. Um, and so, but that's like really, that's Europe and, and Japan, which I think is what a lot of people just gravitate towards when they first like go, oh, movies aren't just Hollywood, um, or aren't just like Hollywood and this very specific style of like independent cinema that existed around people like Quentin Tarantino. Um, Mm -hmm. and so... I've kind of been intentionally trying to watch some more movies that are, again, like from outside of that original scope, um, even though the Icelandic scope, I think it is pretty niche, <laughs> um, but I'm still trying to diversify. And so I was looking into this movie a little bit more again. So I was like, I, I remembered it and I was like, oh, it's a Chilean film. I didn't actually know that at the time that I was just like seeing tweets about it. Um, so, yeah, it came out in 2019 or at least that's when it premiered at the Venice uh, Film Festival. I don't know how long it took for it to hit, like, um, Art House Circuit, because I I feel like there have been a lot of delays there. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I I ended up watching it uh, a couple nights ago. Um, Was it last night that I watched it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I am feeling slightly more settled on it in in terms of like, I do think I liked that movie. We might cover it at some point for, for stairwells. Um, at the time, like when I first finished it, I was like, it won. It's a weird movie. Um, and also it is touching on a lot of stuff that like hit very close to home for me. Um, although Mm -hmm. often in like far more intensified ways, um, like the, the opening premise, I don't want to reveal too much about this film. The opening premise is um, there's Emma, a young dancer, and then um, the director of the company for which she dances, um, Gaton, I think. I think I was trying to listen to how they were saying it in the movie, and it sounds like the S is like hardly pronounced, but it's like Gaston with an accent over the O. Um, But it sounds like they didn't really, yeah, hit the S. I don't know Spanish that that well, but that is and. A Chilean accent thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, but then, so Gaton, um, and, um, so they, they are married. Um, it's like revealed, uh, fairly early on, I think in the film that he's like 12 years older than her. Um, and the very beginning of the film are just these really intense scenes of them just like, saying really, really horrible stuff to each other. Like, it's clearly a very toxic marriage. Um, he seems to be particularly abusive, but, like, neither of them are are being great in this situation. Um, and what's kind of revealed early on is that shortly before, like, the film begins, 
Um, they had adopted a child because, uh, he can't like, he's sterile. Um, and so was like unable to give her a son and they adopted a child. Um, and that child was apparently troublesome. Um, and you know, I'm not going to list like all of the horrible things that he supposedly did, but two of them center around like, um, pyromania, um, including like trying to burn the house down and then, and then burning, um, Emma's sister. But there are, like, other things that are included that, like, seem to gesture towards this, like, antisocial behavior or something. Um, mm-hmm. And so they gave him back up for adoption. Um, and also it kind of just seems like the their marriage is in a really bad place where, like, you know, I, this happens slightly later in the film, but I think it's signaled early on. Like, she goes to a, an attorney about being like, I, I want a divorce. Um, and so I think some of it, too, is like, okay, like one this child is is like very difficult seemingly for them to deal with um their relationship is not in a good place anyways and like if they're going to break up why they're going to keep this kid um mm-hmm. and so yeah the the beginning is just like these really intense scenes of people um berating each other but especially a lot of people berating Emma for being like a terrible mother um and like how terrible it is that she's like giving up this child and everything um, and then I don't want to like talk too much more about what happens beyond that, but a lot of it becomes this very strange plot of her trying to like get her son back. <laughs> um, and I don't want to go into too much more detail because again, I think we'll do it on the podcast at some point. Um, but for a lot of the film, I was like, so it, this also deals extensively with like, um, she's bisexual in the film. Uh, we see multiple sex scenes with her, with like men and women, um, is also very clearly polyamorous. Uh, she's like in this like polycule of just a bunch of, of queer women who are dancers. Um, and then also like dating these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and on another woman that she meets as well. Um, and so it's like dealing with a lot of the stuff around like queerness, polyamory, and then like feelings of not being good, um, as a mother of like failing as a mother in these ways that were just like extremely intense. And I really didn't know where, where it was going. And I think there was a part like five minutes from the ending where I texted you being like, I think this is a horror movie and Emma is the monster. Um, and then I got to the end and I was like, um, actually, no, I think she's like the hero. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I I don't want to go into more detail, but it was, yeah, it's, it's a very weird and intense movie. Um, and I, I'm still to some degree processing it. (laughs) When so I, I was at Taco Bell, and I was like calling you just to like catch up, and um, you're describing this movie to me at like the 45 minute mark, mm-hmm. and I'm like, so is it a horror movie? Is this like a Babadook? Because I thought you were just I thought you were just describing a Babadook ripoff, because that's what it sounded like to me. And then you're yeah. like, no, and I was like, well, then what the hell is it? <laughs> And then I was like, I don't know. And then I was looking and I was like, it says it's a drama film. This website says that it's a musical. Um, They don't sing, but there are lots of dance sequences set to music. 
um, reggaeton features really heavily in this movie. Um, and mm. they're just like extensive dance sequences. Um, and then also said romance. And I was like, there's been no romance so far. Cause up until that point, it was just all divorced and people yelling at each other and saying like horrible things to each other. And then literally like we hung up and I started watching the movie some more. Um, <laughs> and like immediately romance starts up and I'm like, Oh, well, God, I don't know what the fuck this movie is anymore. <laughs> um, and I really didn't know what the movie was until like literally the final moments. So, um, it sounds kind of interesting. It sounds up my alley, at least. I think yeah. I would maybe be if you told me this is a horror movie, I'd be like, I'm going to watch that tomorrow, you know, but knowing it's this like weird mix of things, I'm like, I would like to watch that, you know, uh, but it's not. I feel like if it was just a horror movie, I'd be like, well, yeah, I'll fucking clear my schedule and we'll fucking watch that shit, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> it's very... I, I do think it is, like, pulling on horror as a genre at moments. Um, I feel like it's playing with genre a lot in this way where it is hard to then, like, categorize it. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, it is, obviously, a digital film, um, you know, shot or, like, released in 2019, um, there's a fair amount of color grading and I thought it looked fairly good. Although after watching in the mood for love, I was like, I, f- I feel like that would look better on film. I feel like that movie would have looked better on film. Um, I feel like it did a little bit. It looks way, Emma looks way better than a Marvel movie. I will mm-hmm. say that. <laughs> um, low bar. Yeah. Very low bar there. But, um, <laughs> Marvel movies problem is so much bigger than being digital. Yeah. You know? But like there there are shots where it's just like so absolutely seeped in this like um pink or purple color. Um like especially a lot of the shots that are like set at and parties or these like orgiastic montages of her having sex with a bunch of different people. Um and some of that is just like I feel like I would like it better if they were using pink gels over lights rather than doing the color grading because there would be like a greater richness to what's happening. Um, And I think this is just going to be me forever, but (laughs) um, yeah, it still looked good. I think it, I think it used some of that stuff fairly well. Um, There are some shots that are, they're incredible. So like the, if you look up the poster for Emma, um, it is, I believe just looking at it, that it's probably Emma and Goton, um, mm-hmm. in front of this like burning sun. Um, but there are sequences where that is like a giant like screen or projection or something, um, on the wall behind. And it's like this da- dance performance. Um, and it's just the sun like changing colors and just like burning in the background while these people like dance and convulse on a, on a stage. Um, and those shots are incredible. Um, and like the, the use of color in those shots are really good. So, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of stairs, um, I don't actually remember why didn't a, that's a, that's a higher ranking than in retrospect. I feel I'm like, did I forget something? There are a lot of stairs in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. there's one in particular that I think is the main one that I was thinking of, which is going up into, into the apartment where Emma and Gauton live. And, um, it has like this, uh, 
I think floral wallpaper on one side. Um, so it just like looks very nice. Um, and basically any time that like we see a shot of Emma walking up to it, she's about to just like start shit and get into a fight with someone. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. she just always walks up to it and then just like immediately, like she walks up t- with, with like complete determination and then will like move into like, there'll be two characters who are already doing something and she'll just come into the scene and just like completely like turn it into like, no, we're fighting now. You're fighting me mm-hmm. now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that just has a, an incredible energy. Um, and then I feel like they're. There's a shot where the stairs are really, like, looming around where um, all of, like, basically our girlfriends in this polycule are like, hey, if you ever need us to do crimes with you, we'll do crimes with you. Um, and then pretty soon after, they're going to go do crimes. Um, and they're just kind of, like, standing around all these stairs. Um, and I thought that was a nice shot. And then it, I think they go up those stairs later and do, like, a reggaeton dance. Um And then there's also these stairs that go up to a school and there's a moment where she goes up to it and does like this huge pivotal moment in the film. So I think that's why I did an A. There are multiple stairs and one of them involves her walking up the stairs and then kind of spur of the moment, like making this big pivotal choice that's going to um, like really tie everything that's been happening in the film together. So um, I guess I feel okay with an A. I can maybe okay. drop it down to an A minus, but I'm not going to overthink yeah. this. We'll we'll talk yeah. about it when I eventually bring this to the podcast. Yeah, um, totally. Um, I guess that's it. Yeah. Do we want to talk about uh, in the mood for love? Yeah, it's the best movie ever made. <laughs> you can't say this uh, about every single movie that we see. I can say it about every single movie I see that I like. <laughs> That's true. You did not say it about no regrets for our youth. (laughs) (laughs) Or I carry you with me. No, I did not say it about I carry you with me. I think those Um, are the only two that you didn't say it about. (laughs) Um, let me look. Let me just take a gander here. I wouldn't call The Hunger the best movie ever made. I would call it the best vampire movie ever made. Yeah, I don't know if I'm right about that, but I would say it. I don't, I don't think you I'm said right. it about Red Peony Gambler either. No, that's just a good movie. Yeah, just a normal good movie, you know. <laughs> Wings of the uh, Wings of Desire, best movie ever made. Uh, Angels of the Universe, made. best movie ever made that you're never gonna watch again. Um, best movie ever made. Akira, best movie ever made. No um, question. Tokyo Drifter, best movie ever made. No question. Yeah. Yeah. What the um, fuck about? Drive, the best movie, best ever movie ever made. <laughs> Rebels of the Neon yes. God is the best movie ever made. Um, yes. <laughs> I would say, I would personally say Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is the best Western ever made. But I don't know if best. Movie I don't know ever if I'd made. say that. I don't know. There are Westerns I like more than Butch Cassidy. Fair. It um, takes us. It takes us three episodes as we're kind of hitting our stride, and then from from Rebels of the Neon God onward, just best movie ever made, best movie ever made, best movie. Um. So anyway, so, let's talk about the best movie ever made in the mood for love. Yeah. Um, in the mood for love is a two thousand film. Um, although uh, by watching it, you may not guess that. <laughs> yeah. 
So it is it is a uh, direct written and directed by Wong Kar Wai. Um, you know what? I'm gonna cite these two actors whose names I'm gonna pull up in just a moment. Um, but it is about because it is you know principally a piece like just letting these two actors like yeah. work. I feel they're like. Um, I think it's Tony <laughs> Lung and Maggie Chung. Yes. Um, it, yeah, I think like. Um, they're very much like, I think they're like, in my mind, the movie does not work without like Wong Kar Wai's like writing and directing. The movie also does not work if they're not like putting in some all time great performances. I think like this movie pivots on those two, um, just doing great work here. Um, so yeah, 2000, um, sort of romantic drama, um, it is about, um, uh, Tony Chung, I'm gonna pull up this character's name, um, is playing, uh, a man named Chow, and, um, you know, we don't actually, we don't actually really get their names, I guess. We get that his name is Mr. Chow, and Maggie Chung's, uh, her husband's name is Mr. Chan. And so she's referred to as Miss Chan uh, throughout the movie. But like, mostly we just get them talking to each other. And so, you know, they're not using each other's names when they're having like a normal conversation with each other. Yeah. Notably, we never see either of their spouses. Yes. Their spouses, um, they're they're next door neighbors and their spouses are cheating on them with each other. So yeah. his wife is cheating on him with her husband. And they Although also like what I find so interesting about this film is mm-hmm. that we get the same information that they get that they draw this conclusion that they are cheating from, which is like, oh, my husband has the same uh tie that you wear that you said it say is this gift from your wife when she traveled abroad. And I have this bag that like, you know, your wife has that like my husband got from me when he was traveling abroad, supposedly. So like we have this like, Oh, there's like this gift that like we can clearly trace is like not from Hong Kong Mm -hmm. that like our spouses have as well. That suggests mm-hmm. that, like, our spouses gave them to each other. Um, and then, like, both of our spouses are, like, pretty much absent from our lives. And so they, like, come to this conclusion that they must be cheating on them. But And we as an audience come to that conclusion, too. But I, I think it is yeah. interesting and important that, like, we never get the full confirmation. Like, we never get a scene where, like, she finds her husband in bed with like his wife or something. Um, yes. And we also, there's... there's also lots of uncertainty around like, I, I guess I'm getting ahead of in your, your synopsis here, but a lot of the film is about them like falling in love, but we also question get denied mark? a lot of their interiority. And it like remains a question throughout all of it of like, do they actually love each other or are they just like friends who are trying to support each other? as they become aware that like, or they believe that their spouses are cheating on them with each other. Um, like, you know, is it mostly this friendship? 
is it actually this like affair that they're having um, as well? Is it like both of them are just lonely and want to like have someone else mm-hmm. to talk to because their spouses aren't there? Um, so much of it is like left vague in a weird way that makes it really interesting. But yes, anyway, I'm jumping we... the gun. <laughs> You, you really are. <laughs> um, so yeah, like basically the film follows them. Um, like the, th- the thing that makes the movie really interesting then is that like we get like to kind of build off what you're saying, like the thing, the sort of the plot of the movie is these sorts of like vignettes and like this sort of like playing around with time and space. You don't quite know how long anything's been going on. You don't quite know, you know, it is often like purposefully trying to disorient you and, uh, you know, leave things ambiguous. You don't ever really know if like, um, uh, these two like, fuck, you know, (laughs) you don't really know, like, the level of the sort of their own infidelity with their spouses or their spouses infidelity with each other. And, um, you just kind of follow them through this sort of, you know, using like the language of film and the ways that like film can sort of like compress and distort time, um, to sort of like, uh, get scenes of their life as they, kind of very specifically don't do a thing you know um in the end she never leaves her husband or she she does not leave her husband for this guy at the end of the movie it is implied that she has left her husband but not for not for her neighbor basically and he does leave his wife um but like the sort of the question that drives the movie is like for me is like are these two i guess that there's a movie driven by like a lot of different questions that like the movie is very specifically trying to not answer and and sort of like make unclear and yeah i guess that's all i had for synopsis i kind of lost my train of thought there but yeah um it it is a movie where so much of it is um like it is this is a very servals movie and that a lot of it is like visuals and and sounds like evoking these um unstated feelings or like uncertainty around feelings that the characters are having of just mm-hmm. like letting the characters act and um acting in ways that like convey some of the the ambiguity and uncertainty that's like throughout all of this um yeah so much of the so much of the movie is not just like the things that the characters say to each other but the way that you know early on i remember a moment where he is walking out of a room and she looks at him but the but in such a way that you're like was she looking at him if she was looking at him was it just because you know he was moving or is it because she was like looking at him like was she interested in him and wanted to like linger on him a moment you know yeah um and it's important and like they're you know so much of the movie 
is about letting the actors not say things to 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 walk up to saying something and then back off from it you know yeah um, so um this is slightly early but there i want to like reveal a couple things here mm-hmm. <laughs> so um bringing back everyone's favorite segment where i i read some some like abstracts and stuff from essays uh this first one i'm just gonna make fun of which is uh i don't even need to really read the the abstract here um i'm just gonna read the title i already read this one to you but um i find it very funny uh so the title of this essay is psychoanalysis and the scene of love lars and the real girl in the mood for love and mulholland drive um (laughs) one the pairing of In the Mood for Love and Mulholland Drive with Lars and the Real Girl is just already very funny to me. Um, <laughs> and then also, like, the fact that this essay is doing a psychoanalytic reading of these films is just extra, like, <laughs> okay, I, Tony I, Hughes' death. <laughs> I. It's not the thing that I ever want to do with that movie, but I understand how you watch a David Lynch movie, and you're like, I have a psychoanalytic reading on this. Yeah. I don't understand how you watch that movie and get here. You don't know enough about these characters by the end of it to, like, really know what they're thinking at all. To me, um, this is, like, jumping the gun into, like, like, stuff I wanted to build to, but, like, the thing that was so compelling to me about this movie is that it is, like, uh, um, a romance movie about like infidelity and like um you know people feeling trapped in marriages that somehow sort of eludes a lot of like gender stuff to me into being sort of like a universal thing where it is not um i know how i watch movies i watch movies and i say well, you would just solve this by transitioning, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would simply solve this problem by cheating on your husband. And, um, you know, I wouldn't think twice about it. Um, <laughs> this, um, this ties into one of the other things I wanted to bring up. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll just let finish... you finish your thought, but yeah. So uh, like I say, I'm kind of jumping the gun to like stuff I wanted to keep building toward, but like I didn't, I didn't ask that. I I didn't think that with this movie because, like, I think the ways in which it shuts you out of what characters are thinking, um, sort of makes it hard to project that sort of like, you know, you could just solve this by, um, transitioning and doing that to to where I don't understand how you get to, um, a psychoanalytic reading because I don't know like you don't know enough about the, their mental states. You are specifically shut out from their mental states, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so the, the thing I wanted to, to then bring in here is one of the things I, I found on Google Scholar is there's actually an entire book that's been written about this movie by Tony Raines. The title of the book is just In the Mood for Love. Um, it's part of the... Um, BFI film classics series, I believe. Um, 
So there's a few things that I want to pull from here. So I, I read this before we watched the movie and there's something in here that I, I wanted to save uh, to tell you on the podcast. But the other part I, I wanted to read that's like directly related to what you're saying um, is from this interview between Wong Kar Wai and Tony Raines. Um, and this is Wong Kar Wai speaking. From the very beginning, I knew that I didn't want to make a film about an, infa- an affair. It would be too boring, too predictable, and it would have only two possible endings. Either they go away together, or they give each other up and go back to their own lives. What interested me was the way that people behave and relate to each other in the circumstances shown in the story. The way that they keep secrets and share secrets. Um, and then... You know, I I think this is kind of pointing towards something that like this is to some degree the we're about to talk and a lot about a movie about a like heterosexual romance. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I think that this movie is like very pre- uh, preoccupied with um, like repressed desire. Um, mm-hmm. The like both of the main characters here, um, one like are unable to actually fulfill the desire for their, like that they would have with their spouses because of like, I think that's even set up early on. is just that like people are working different schedules and things like they hardly ever see mm-hmm. each other anyway. Um, which like takes on an even sadder tinge when you know what the movie's going to be about. Mm. Um, and then once they're spending time together, there is this like sense of them wanting something more. And yet, they are so concerned throughout the film of like, oh, you know, what would happen if I left your apartment while, um, you know, like this person showed up unexpected and I'm I'm here, like we're just eating noodles in your room. But like, I was in your bedroom. Yeah. But they're going to take something from me being in your bedroom that maybe was not true or maybe was true. It is not clear yeah. to me. Um, and well, the film is more yeah. concerned with their con- their worry and concern about the social appearances. Yes. Then, like, whether or not they're actually even, like... Yes. Whether that social appearance is actually pointing at anything true or not. Um, they're so concerned about what the gossip might be. Like, oh, if I walk home and I'm carrying your umbrella, they'll they'll know it's your umbrella. So, like, you know, you can't give me the umbrella because it's raining. Um, mm-hmm. Like, not only can you not walk me home, but you can't give me the umbrella because people will know that it's your umbrella. Um, mm-hmm. All of this stuff pointing towards, like, this... The film being so concerned about the the way that, like, society and expectations, like, create the space where they can't even... Like, the... So much of the film is about their feelings around, like, what are people even thinking about us? That, like, that becomes the preoccupation of the film and not even, again, like, the actual heterosexual romance that could be there. Um, So much Mm. more of it is about, like, having these desires and not, uh, or even potentially having those desires and not being able to express them because of like the, the situation that you're in. And so this is the part where I can push towards like <laughs> there, I think there is something still somewhat queer in this um, or, mm. or that is like touching on something that, that might resonate with queer experiences because of this like yeah. way that um, these social expectations are like delimiting the space of what they can even do 
Um, and like the way that they have to concern themselves with like, and the way that when you are queer and you're existing in a queer phobic society, you like in some ways overanalyze some of your own actions of being like, well, I can't do that because then people will think I'm gay. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. and everyone's kind of doing that, whether or not they are gay, but especially if you are, it just like becomes even more intense. Um, right. Well, and so, um, but again, I don't think this is actually a queer movie. I'm just, I'm just groping for our queer reading here because we're, we're, we're gay homos on this podcast. I, I, (laughs) I tweeted on my long Twitter part way through this movie. Like I'm going to make up a T for T reading of, uh, in the mood for love. Cause I'm just enjoying this straight movie too much. Um, <laughs> I, I found out the queer reading for us. We can move on now. <laughs> oh, the other thing I wanted to say from this, unless you have mm-hmm. immediate responses to what I just said. Um, no. So, Throughout this, there is this um, sad waltz. Um, it is, I believe, what would be considered, uh, according to the like this book, a valse triste, which would be a, a sad waltz. Um, it was composed by the Japanese musician uh, Umebashi Shigeru. Uh, the name of the song is Yumeji's theme, because it is from the film Yumeji which is the final film, the third film, in Suzuki Seijun's Taisho Trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) So the the primary musical motif of this film is a Suzuki Seijun song. (laughs) Um, That's cute. So, yeah. Throughout all of this, as you were commenting on it, I was just like, I need to wait for the podcast to reveal this to Autumn, but... (laughs) I mean, yeah, like to kind of, to kind of go back to what you were saying, like the there was a thing where we were watching the movie, and I was like, I said something that I was like, I said something thinking like, ah, this is going to be like the next dramatic beat, like this is going to be the next plot point in the because what I thought it, I what I thought this movie was going to be was um them sort of like consummating this relationship and then either running off or going back to their, to their spouses, you know? Um, that's what I thought this movie was going to be. And so what I, I, I'm watching this and we're getting into the part, it's like 30 minutes in maybe. And like, we're getting into where they're starting to be interested in each other and they're getting dinner together a bunch. And, um, once again, I just want to shout out, like, you know, you get a scene, of them having dinner together and one like these dinner scenes are really good because um like it's not doing shot reverse shot because uh i hate it and i assume one car why hates it too i ju- <laughs> just i watched this movie and i assume he hates shot reverse shot and never wants to put it in a movie yeah uh, he very occasionally employs it in ways that feel purposeful <laughs> yes um so um he you're doing the scene and instead of doing shot over shot you get this sort of like out you know this shot of them at the dinner table in this diner you can see both of them and then it kind of zooms in on one and then it'll pan to the other as the other is talking and pans back and forth like this and then it'll pan somewhere else and like it'll pan and she'll be in a different dress and by being in a different dress you know oh this isn't just a one-time thing pardon me um, this isn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't... We're not seeing the one time they went out to dinner. We're seeing 
all the times they went out to dinner. You know, yeah. how many times? Not really sure because, you know, she's in four different dresses in this scene, but we don't really know. And we come back to similar scenes later, you know, anyway. Yeah. And she, um, like, I, to it, in an interesting way that, like, I think further creates this, um, this sense of, like, the indeterminacy of time is also the way that, like, we return to outfits, um, in a way where if, like, every single scene she had a different dress, even if she had a lot of different dresses, would still, I think, suggest to me, like, a shorter time frame or, like, clearer time frame Mm -hmm. than sometimes she's just wearing that dress again. Right. Yeah. And, and who, you know, you wear the same clothes over and over again. Like, unless yeah. you're an extremely rich celebrity who can afford to wear something once and throw it away. Um, you just wear stuff over and over again and, and yeah. we'll see her in the same dress, like three or four times sometimes throughout the movie. Um, yeah, she just owns like 15 dresses and, you know, she gets them cleaned and like, they're nice dresses because she's like works in an office and I assume she has them dry cleaned, but like she owns a finite number of dresses. We see yeah. them, you know? <laughs> um, so, um, but, to, but to get back to what, what I was saying there, like I'm, I'm watching this dinner scene and I'm like, are these two characters interested in each other or are they lonely and they think that having an affair will fix their loneliness. And I'm asking that question thinking, well, that's what's going to be the next scene. The next scene is going to be about them, like, becoming interested in each other beyond just their own loneliness. And then I realize, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I I asked that question all out loud. I, I asked, like, are they interested in each other or are they just lonely? And then I'm like, oh, that's what this movie's going to be about. <laughs> Yeah, that mo- that question is going to go an- unanswered for the next hour of this film, <laughs> um, and it's fucking incredible. Oh my god. <laughs> um, yeah, I just was so taken with this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I think what else was I gonna say? So something else I kind of wanted to talk about is just some of the actual aesthetics of this film. Um, one one of the big things is, and this is something that um, we kind of joked about earlier on in this episode, but is like, this is a period piece and it is uh, like absolutely incredible how much this really just feels like it is the 1960s. Um in if a, you told if you told me this movie was released in 1972, I would believe you. If you told me it was 1962, I'd be like, that camera looks too new. But if yeah. you told me if this was a 70s movie, I'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it was like early 70s or maybe like very late 60s. And they're like yeah. doing, you know, oh, it's just, you know, like the movie ends in, in um, 1966, which this is the part that I... I like I'm kind of want to read this this book, like see if I can get a full copy of it, because um, I'm kind of wondering if there's more stuff going on. I know that like 1966 in Hong Kong was when there were sort of these first big riots that like kickstarted a lot of um, leftist movements that continued in Hong Kong. 
and also 1966 in Cambodia, which the the film ends um, Mm -hmm. with like some shots from that as well is when there's this general election that also like set some of the groundwork for the Cambodian civil war um, and like some of the, the leftist leftist movements that rose up as well. So there's a certain Mm. amount of like this movie ending in 66 and specifically being like them in Hong Kong, like, you know, her in Hong Kong and then they're talking about like, Oh, like everyone's moving out. Like the country's changing so much now, which seems to be pointing towards like the riots are happening. Um, and then him in Cambodia being like, okay, there's a, this election happening makes me wonder, like, is this pointing towards, like, I can see that it is pointing towards, like, lots of societal change was on the horizon for um, Hong Kong in particular as, like, the primary focus of this film, but, like, also situating it in, like, a larger global context, um, especially, like, within Asia. But... I don't really know what it's doing with that in a way where like I got to the end of it and I was like, Whoa, I was not expecting this to, to touch on like <laughs> the rise of leftist movements in Hong Kong. Um, mm-hmm. that starting in the 1960s, I did not know that this movie was going there because yeah. for most of the movie, it's like literally just there. Um, I, I was going to say romance, but again, I don't know if that's the correct term. So, <laughs> um, I yeah, it is I I'm gonna can I thought about this while I was watching it, like I would refer to this to, to this as a romantic movie because like I don't know, sometimes you have a fling with somebody, some sometimes two people are interested in each other and it just like their romance happens and there's no sort of like relationship or, you know Yeah. Sometimes things fizzle out. Like that is a very there were times that this movie saw through to me. Um, it, it hit close to home, you know, in the in the sorts of ways that you're like deeply, powerfully involved with someone, and then you're not, and it's like we're just never going to talk about that. I guess you know. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It. This I feel very comfortable saying this is a romance movie. Um, mm-hmm. I was more uncertain about whether or not I want to describe their relationship specifically as a romance, but because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as a movie, this is a movie that's very preoccupied with with like romance as a subject, um, mm-hmm. and and yeah, I do think portrays some sort of romance, but so much of the un- like uncertainty and ambiguity ambiguity is part of it for me. Um, mm-hmm. But um, anyway, the the other like big aesthetic thing that I want to talk about um, is, and I believe this is just true of Wong Kar Wai in general. Um, my my impression, I could be wrong. Feel free to correct me, listeners, if I'm like completely off base. But the the impression and like what I kind of know of him is that uh, generally he kind of detests sets. It seems like it seems like he really likes set like shooting on um, location, not doing set shooting. Um, and I'm fairly certain most of this movie was set like, or was shot in various locations. Um, I know that as a film um, for what is essentially a bunch of actors sitting in, in like 
domestic spaces, um, the amount of time it took to shoot this film was extensive. Uh, I think it was like over a year. I forget exactly. Let me see if I can, if I can find the, the number again. Um, and so much of that was just like him being exacting about wanting to get this to look like the sixties while using location shooting and like not building sets. Um, let me see if I can confirm this again. I read something that I think it was like 15 months that it took to shoot. Um, I can see that. I can yeah. very much see that. Um, which also some of this is just like, like the mirror shots in this are incredible and I'm sure were difficult to, to like yes. stage and capture. Um, but then also is... tie into like stuff at the end about through a glass dimly, like um, looking back on the past. Yeah. There is a shot of, um, you know, um, I feel like this used to be more common. Um, these sorts of like three panel mirrors, you know, where you have like one long uh, mirror that's sort of just square with you and then two angled ones. Yeah. Um, and the camera like pans across the like full like view of this um, uh three panel mirror thing and i'm like how did you do that (laughs) yeah so um yeah so so it took 50 months to shoot um apparently also he was extremely exacting again about this being like 1960s hong kong um and so some of this involved like one the clothing is all like very of the time, but that's something that I think is a little easier to, to do. Um, but also trying to do a lot of this in like buildings and streets, um, I guess was extremely difficult because of how much Hong Kong, like the, the rapid changes that had been going through, um, after like 66, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, stuff like clothes hanging on lines were things that he was concerned about. Like, are there clothes hanging on lines? That's, that is something that I think is important for like portraying Hong Kong. And are the clothes correct that are hanging on lines in this like street (laughs) shot that I'm doing? (laughs) Um, so yeah, I guess, um, a portion of it, even though it was set in Hong Kong and, um, that's like, (laughs) <laughs> where all the actors were living. That's where, you know, one car Y was. Um, a lot of it was shot in Bangkok because stuff was just less modernized and actually looked more like the sixties to him, like sixties mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Um, and then I guess, so there is a, the part in Singapore they did go to Singapore for, um, and supposedly they also said a little bit of Hong Kong stuff there as well. Um, and, yeah, it, like it's it's kind of incredible. Um oh, so the the other part here too is I guess the actors um like were much younger than Wong Kar Wai, and so there was also a certain amount of them being like, yeah, I I wasn't alive there, and I guess he was also particularly demanding about them even getting like being people from the 60s, right? <laughs> um in this way that like makes it sound like Wong Kar Wai might be a slightly um 
<laughs> frustrating person to wa- work with, but this movie's fucking incredible. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um. Also, Christopher Doyle, cinematographer here. Shout outs to him. Um. Um. Uh, absolutely. Sorry. Uh, yawning because it's getting late. Um. What else did I want to say about this movie? Um, I just, I'm so fucking taken with this movie. I was so taken with, um, I guess, yeah, like the, the, the thing that just really fucking hit for me about this movie was just the, the way in which, like, you know, to kind of, like, reiterate and expand on what I was starting to get toward earlier, like, uh, I know how I watch movies. I always want to just, like, you know, I always want to, like, force a gay reading on movies because that's how I am, and I know that. And it's <laughs> that's kind what of this a bit podcast of a, is. It's what the podcast is, and it's, like, a bit of a joke, and it's a bit earnest. I really appreciated that this movie could could do all the things it's doing without feeling sort of like bogged down by gender stuff yeah um i very much think so part of the like really like thorny drama late in the movie is that he is in love with her he is fully in love with her and I don't know that she's in love with him. Um, even if she is, I don't know that she's ready to leave her husband. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and most of what we see her expressing around it is just, like, her crying. You see her crying yes. alone. There's a part where she's crying and he's, like, comforting her. But again, it's yes. still, like, unclear is this, like, she loves him back and, and can't, um, like actually say that and that's the way she's crying or is it like he's going he's basically saying like hey i'm i'm going to singapore um like come with me or i guess don't um mm-hmm. and and is it just like well now i'm just going to be alone because my like husband doesn't love me um very unclear of like what is it that she's really crying about so right um and so um like that's like the really that was like the best part of the movie to me is this sort of these sorts of like questions and ambiguities and like what we see her go through there and it feels in any other like you know less adept movie i think it would i think it would be a movie about um how men are allowed to leave their wives and women are not allowed to leave their husbands like socially it's acceptable for him to do that and it's not acceptable for her to do that um i don't think that's what the movie is about i i i think it is genuinely this person in a great deal of pain um that cannot be mended and she wants this easy fix of 
you know, doing this, being in an affair as well, but she kind of knows that that's, at least how I read it, like, she knows that, like, this will not actually mend the, like, loneliness she is feeling, uh, and that is such a more interesting movie to me, <laughs> um, than it being about gender for <laughs> fucking once. Um, yeah. And it makes it resonate with, like, me and my own life as a, like, trans, queer, polyamorous person where, like, you know, like, I don't know, I've just been in situations where I'm, like, (laughs) I've just been in situations where I, I, I have felt the way that she feels, you know, um, and... I've been in situations where I just want to, like, you know, be her friend and, like, sit down with her and be like, this is what you should fucking do right now. You gotta, like, you gotta tell that man that he ain't shit. (laughs) Um, I don't know. It feels like this sort of, like, it feels like it sort of cuts to the core of, like, um, the feeling of cheating and the feeling of being cheated on and the feeling of um the and the feeling of like wanting your love to be enough for someone um and it's fucking it's fucking amazing you know <laughs> um and, and Sorry, I don't want to cut you off because I, I was going to kind of tangent away from there. Um, no, I, I don't think of anything directly related to that. Um, I, the other thing was just the like the way that like it does all this. I think through you know, it's the sort of sh- shit we were talking about last week where like. I don't think it does this through words. I think it does this through editing, and I think it does this through acting, and I think it does this through everything that film can do. It is sort of like the totality of everything that film can do to me, um, except, you know, the words and the lines of dialogue. Even when the, even when people are speaking, and people speak a lot in this movie, but people don't speak a lot. And when they are speaking like they're very clearly like leaving things out um this movie is so much about um i i I tweeted a joke while we were watching the movie you telling me this shit has light and shadow um and i i think it's important because i think the movie is just as much about like all the stuff that you see um, and all the stuff that sort of like film editing takes out, you don't know all the specifics of their sort of like quasi affair or affair or what it is. You, you don't know so much stuff and, um, like the stuff that you don't know is as important to like 
what the movie is as the stuff that you do know. This, this to bring it back to this joke tweet idea, like the the shadows are as important here as the light. Um, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, this ties into the other thing that I I I kept like talking about aesthetics and then getting distracted, but I think this is actually a good moment to bring this in. Um, Cause I was kind of setting up, you know, a lot of this was, was seemingly shot on location, which includes like in these small apartment buildings and um, hotel rooms and things. And one of the things that, that really struck me as I was like getting deeper into the film and thinking about a lot of these things that you're talking about right now was how much the, that choice um forces the camera into these like small spaces where so often um a hallway or a doorway or the frame of a window or like the things that are just occupying the foreground are like covering up parts of the image are framing the image and like reframing the image um there are these shots of like uh this like kind of window space where uh, it's like this giant oval and there's like bookshelf, like there's a bookshelf in the middle that has books on them. Um, and they're just like shots there where people's kind of move in and out of like the ovals where you can see them. And then they'll like kind of disappear from the frame. Um, and like so much of that too, is I think like calling attention to, in film, there are always the limits of the frame, but the the way that this is shot, there's so much of like, you know, people will be in a hallway and they'll ring the doorbell and the door will open and you can't see into the space that they're looking into and they step into it and then it will cut. Um, and things like that, like so much of the way that it's shot is using the, the environment to, on one hand, like make you aware of the limits of the frame of a film itself. And then I think also giving you this like somewhat oppressive cramped feeling of like them being trapped in these spots, um, them feeling like they're like stuck in these buildings, um, in these mm-hmm. small rooms that they like, can't really have this like, um, expressive freedom. And I think the only part where the film really breaks from that is, um, when he's in Cambodia and he, so there's this part that he, he says earlier about how like it used to be in the past when, when people have, would have secrets, they would go to a tree and they would like drill a hole, say their secret into the tree, um, like cover it up with mud and then leave. And the, they would just leave the secret behind. It would just be like there. Um, they, they would like almost be able to like let go of it in that process. Um, and basically goes and does this is like this hole in this, um, I don't know exactly where in Cambodia this is. It feels like temple kind of space. Um, Mm -hmm. and like set, you know, speaks into a hole, covers it up with, with mud and is leaving. And as he's like leaving, we get, um, there's still a lot of like the architecture around, um, obscuring parts of the frame and us not always seeing him, but it is just like such a, a wide and expansive space mm-hmm. in the way that um, even when they are on the streets in Hong Kong, it is still often fairly cramped streets um, mm-hmm. and often is also like limited by quite often when they're on the street, it starts raining and then they're like, oh, we have to like stay under this overhang. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just thought that, that was like uh, one of these things that is also um, like a big thing that I think about when I think about films is filmic space. Um, how does like the film itself create this sense of space and like what is the space of the film and how does that perhaps even differ from, from real life? And I think this like possibly by just shooting in like the conventions of film is that we often it is shot in rooms that are far larger than rooms that ever exist. This is why there's the joke of like, why does everyone in a 90s sitcom, they're like living in New York and just this giant apartment that no one would ever have in New York. And it's like, well, cause it's a set and you need a big set. So, actors can move around in it and stuff and it's not like cramped like Mm -hmm. (laughs) these are like the demands of we expect these conventions to a certain degree um in the same way that like in video games too like if you actually made video games perfectly mapped to like real spaces it would feel like you're just constantly running into walls um right because like actual apartments are just far more cramped than like how we imagine them in a lot of these and so this this is probably just a normal space that if you were living there would not feel really small and cramped, but the way that like by doing it yes. in film, it becomes a cramped space. Um, yes. And that, that's also something that I find fascinating. Like the way that this both dislocates like time and also just like plays with space, like both time and space in this film become kind of um, really just like preoccupied with both of them and the, the like tension between them. Um mm-hmm. And the tension between them and then, like, the expectations around them and, like, the the repressive systems around them. Um, And I think a lot of that is, like, actually just built up with what's the editing doing, what's the, the, like, staging and the the, um, framing doing. Um, So, you know, trying to, like, further point to some of those (laughs) those formalistic aesthetic things that really stood out to me watching Mm -hmm. this. And I really, like, I enjoyed how much this movie again and again... Um, the action might be like a small sliver through the the hallway, and so much of it is just like dirty concrete walls or something, right? right? Or just like lamps in the foreground or something, um, right? But yeah, I think it really worked, and it it like ties into all of the stuff that you you've been talking about. Yeah. Um. Um. Do we want to rate the stairwell? I have already rated the stairwell uh yeah yeah um okay so you've given it an s rank you're right you're correct one um get a couple different stairwells in this movie always big plus two um the stairwell in the apartment building i feel is well used um we don't spend as much we that is the one we probably see the most frequently not many scenes there but we see it um there is also a really incredible sequence of like, at some point he gets this motel, this hotel room that he's staying at for some indefinite period, and she calls him or he calls her to come see him there, and um, we get this sort of shot of like her walking up the stairs, but then it'll like she'll walk up like three steps and then it'll cut. And she'll be like one step behind and it'll cut again. She'll be like four steps forward and it'll be at a different angle. And like, you know, it's sort of like she's going to see him in a hotel room. Like she is clearly like 
needs to make a decision now about what she is going to do once she sees him in this hotel room, you know, um, and she's kind of breaking a little bit. And I think that's what the movie's conveying. That's not even the best stairwell scene because <laughs> the, the, the first scenes of them noticing each other are, um, them like slow motion like walking past each other a couple days in a row as each of them goes and gets noodles at the same place down the street basically yeah um the one of the most pivotal scenes of the movie is a slow motion stairwell shot i don't know what more we could ask for (laughs) you get them coming up you get them going down you get uh, the camera at the bottom of the stairs. You get the camera at the top of the stairs. It's everything. It's everything. S rank, best best fucking stairwell ever made. Yeah. Um. No, no. Pale Flower is still the best stairwell I've ever made because uh, it is one more ornate and two he's gonna go kill a dude in the middle of a crowd <laughs> at the top of that stairwell. <laughs> yeah, we we won't get to it, but that is the stairwell that named this podcast. So, um. Yeah, it is the stairwell by which we compare all other stairwells in all other movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but this one's close. This one's close enough to be an S. Yeah. Um, we do have... Do we just have the, the one email from Joe, or is there, is there more? Uh, I believe it is just the one email. I'll take a quick look here real quick. Got a lot of new patrons, um, which I very much appreciate, but it does make it hard to um keep up with things got so many new patrons people fucking love lord of the rings um if you're a new patron and you love the lord of the rings and also are like oh i like in the mood for love i hope you're enjoying this episode (laughs) yeah i shout out to you lover of uh early aughts cinema um Um, yeah, just the one from Juo. Okay. Um, uh, who, who writes, um, hello, Raiden and Galadon, which is a reference to a different podcast that you're not on. Yeah, I'm not on that one, Juo. Um... What's your favorite movie trilogy composed of movies from the same creator that aren't actually a connected narrative? So what are our choices here? We've got the Man With No Name trilogy. Um, we've got uh, that John Carpenter trilogy that I haven't seen two of the three films for, so I'm not going to say that one. Got we the have... Evil Dead trilogy, arguably. Sort of, kind of. We have Suzuki Seijun's Taisho trilogy. Oh, yeah. Who could forget? The Suzuki? only the only connective tissue there is just that it's all set during the Taisho era. Okay. I have, I have not seen any of those films, I don't believe, so. I'm going to say those ones. Um, I am pretty partial to those Man With No Name movies, but um, if we'll permit the Evil Dead movies, I know Army of Darkness is a sequel to Evil Dead 2, but it is such a different thing. Um, and Evil Dead 2 is sort of just a remake of Evil Dead 1 and is not a sequel in any way, shape, or form as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's just a funnier remake of it. Um, I'd say Evil, I'd say the Evil Dead trilogy. I don't really like Army of Darkness all that much, to be honest, but, um, 
Evil One and Evil Dead One and Two are all time classics. I think. Um, um, I just remembered that Rebels in the Neon God is the first part of the Taipei trilogy, which is unrelated but all set in Taipei. Um, the other two we being Viva L'Amour and The River. Yeah, we should watch those. I'm gonna say that even though I haven't watched um t- two of the three movies, just because God Rebels of the Neon God is just have you seen incredible. it? It's great. It's yeah. the best fucking movie ever made. <laughs> you should watch it and then listen to our episode about it. Um, yeah. Every single person who watches Rebels of the Neon God because I did a podcast episode about it is like a triumph. This podcast is worth it. <laughs> yes. Um. Uh, do you have any thoughts or feelings about um, Kim Ki Duck's movies? I can't think about In the Mood for Love without also thinking about Three Iron. Um, I'll just you know sort of blanket say that like um, part of the project of Stairwells is that like I was a film person for several years and I think still had a very insular sort of American worldview because I was you know a teenager when I was more of a film person the first time. And so, uh, I was dumb and, um, I'm very, 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 very much not familiar with a lot of, um, Asian cinema. So I do not know three iron. Um, while we've been talking, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It looks fascinating. Um, yeah, I have not seen it. So, um, I've been meaning to watch more Kim Ki Duk. Um, (laughs) The I have on our like list of um potential movies to do um spring summer fall winter and spring which I I think is one of his most widely known films um do you really enjoy that that movie um but yeah I, I need to I would love the, to watch some more from him I need to use the uh, spreadsheet of movies to talk about more often because um. I feel sort of vague panic every time I have to pick a movie. Um, um, I rely very heavily on that spreadsheet. Uh, you also add a lot more stuff to it than I do. That's that's true. Um, that's my problem. Yeah. So on the topic of us trying to broaden, like, what what is the scope of this podcast? What movies are we watching from different countries um i had three movies that i was debating about for that my next pick here um and i'm not gonna say the names of the other two but but one is like a fairly well-known czech film um one of them is a not super well-known danish film but one that i enjoy and then the one that i picked is city of god um, mm-hmm. which is Brazilian and is of the three, one that I haven't watched. I know you have. Um, and it's one that has Seen like long times, felt. I think. Um, yeah, this is one that has like long felt like a gap. Um, it's been one that I've just been meaning to watch and there's part of my life where I was not watching a lot of movies and it kind of just sat there being like, I'm going to watch it eventually and we should do it now. <laughs> um you you also so you picked for our next episode episode 13 yeah uh, i also picked for episode 15 already yes (laughs) um the movie that uh rick uh found for us um hibari hibari no mori no ishimatsu um the uh sort of like drag uh king and queen uh yakuza movie that you've talked about a couple times um so 
it is put on me this like pressure i'm like i gotta pick something for episode 14 and part of the so um like part of the reason i was browsing the criterion channel looking for stuff to watch was it's like um i spent a couple years in school like um i spent a couple years in school studying spanish um and you know watching movies in spanish was like part of that you know um sort of a very 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 elementary understanding of like different um like film cultures throughout the uh uh spanish-speaking parts of the world like that was part of that you know learning spanish in school stuff um and i was like we we haven't done any like spanish movies on here you know not spanish as in like the country that we could um just like you know movies from central and south america as well um i've been trying to pick something i've been feeling very indecisive because it's like it's either i have to pick something i've seen way too much like i have to pick pan's labyrinth or i have to embarrass myself and say i haven't seen itu mama tambien um i have seen which that is one. it's an embarrassing thing to admit to on a podcast and i should yeah. i should I'm a horrible person. <laughs> um, I mean, I just admitted to not seeing City of God. So, do we want to? Do you just want to say episode fourteen now? <laughs> yeah, let's let's put in Itumama Tambien, uh, directed by Alfonso Cuarón. Uh, I love Cuarón, and um, I I love his like pop movies like Gravity. Um, I love. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to type and talk at the same time. Yeah. Uh, which I can't do because my computer you, froze up. Do you want me to type it in? No. Uh, I My computer just froze right in the middle of typing while I was also trying to talk. Um, so, uh, I love Cuaron. I love his, like, pop movies. I love his, like, actually indie movies that are, like, more, you know, artsy than fucking Gravity is. Um, but... I have not seen Itumama Tambien, so we'll watch that. I could also choose... Um, I can't remember the... What's his first movie? Uh, Solo con tu pereja? Is that it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I could choose that, but we'll we'll do Itumama. Um, that'll be good. Okay. Um, this, is, this is the first time that we've like had it planned out this much in advance, so people have time to... Yeah. watch stuff and write in the other thing i was thinking about which i had thought about before you told me city of god i was like movies from like central and south america and i was just like looking at my own letterbox to watch list and i was like i could do black orpheus i haven't seen that movie that movie seems really good um and i'm i'm tempted by the idea of doing um city of god and um black orpheus back to back but we'll do we'll do what we're doing right now yeah so 14 uh anyway where can people find you online um people can find me at fox on twitter or they can go to at garford aloud to watch me read garfield aloud into um a camera. Also, I want to say, I often forget to mention this. If you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh, I want to write in about one of the three movies that you've now said that you're you're doing as the next three, um, you can write into x4audiopodcast at gmail.com. You can also, if you, you know, um, 
heard our Wings of Desire episode and you watched it and, you know, uh, you have some burning desire to talk to us about it, you can email us about Wings of Desire. You can email us about Mulholland Drive. You can e- email us about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. You can email us about whatever the fuck you want to email us about. Yeah. Um, Joe emailed us about a movie I'd never fucking heard of. So, you know. <laughs> You're going to email about um, whatever the fuck you want. Um, we yeah. may not read some emails, depending on what territory it goes I, into, but. Yeah, I guess ask a movie question. Um, yeah. Don't don't email this podcast asking about Lord of the Rings. Um <laughs> Unless you're talking about the Bakshi movie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, now people are gonna write a fucking Lord of the Rings Bakshi movie question. Just to be no, brats. no. Zhuo is gonna do it. Zhuo yeah, is that's gonna what I say. Do it. That's what I was gonna say. People are not going to write in. Zhuo will write in <laughs> to ask about the Bakshi you're Lord of the Rings out, movie. You're called out, Anyway, um. You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find all my other podcasts at exportaud.io. If you are not a patron of the Export Audio Patreon, you should become one for just a dollar a month. You'll get access to this podcast a week early. Um, you'll get access to hot singles and back-end book club and um, other podcasts. It's 1 a.m. and I can't think of names right now. Forgive yeah. me. Um um you'll get all that stuff or what you'll get all that stuff a week early for one dollar um you will get the um is the marble hornets podcast patreon only the marble hornets podcast is patreon only it is one dollar i'm enjoying that one (laughs) i i'm olivia is such a delight (laughs) listen like everyone knows that i love my wife um uh and everyone knows that i hit on olivia on twitter a lot um but like olivia as a person on a podcast is just fucking delightful uh i love everything that she's on and um the marble hornets podcast is very good i don't i can't really follow it because i don't really know what marble hornets is um, i started but... watching marble hornets because of this podcast um <laughs> <laughs> uh... So, um, yeah, people should listen to that. And for $5, you can get, um, access to our Godzilla podcast. Um, Godzilla's not dead. We've done two episodes so far. We were supposed to record a third episode about Rodan today, but, um, five minutes into the recording, I got a call needing me to come into work 90 minutes early. So that didn't happen, but it'll happen this weekend. So, yeah. Yeah. Um... I had some other thing I was going to say, but I don't remember anymore. So I guess I'll just say that Okokoro is real. Oh, I remember what it was now. Um, episode 16, I think, is going to be in October, so that'll be the start of our horror movies. Oh, shit. Yeah. Did yeah. we... We could we could fucking do that right now. Um, we oh, could do we fucking... want to just plot out that far ahead? Let's go. Yeah, sure. Let me let me do it this way, you fucking dork. Watch this. Watch this. Stop. 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 I'm stopping. I'm stopping. I'm not touching the spreadsheet. Look at that. Look at that. Okay. Look at you. <laughs> You're so cool. You've got the biggest tick and everyone loves you. Um, <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, um, 
So, what have we talked about for doing for... We're going to do Haosu yeah. at some point in October. Um, um, I've talked about Cat People. Cat People might be fun to do for the 16th. Yeah. Um, um, I felt... We talked about Blood for Dracula. I don't know that that's you know, top of my priority list. The thing was that I realized that I had, like, 40 ideas for, like, horror movies to cover and only four weeks to do it, which makes me think that I should just start bringing horror movies throughout the year, but, you know. Yeah. Uh I I was also debating on, do we want to do a fifth one, which would be, we would watch and record it, like, probably the, the 28th of October, but I don't think it would come out until November 2nd. Oh yeah, we could totally do five weeks. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna do Hausu. Um. I want to. I want to put Suspiria on here, and we can decide in order. I'm gonna put Suspiria on here because that is a movie I have been intending to see for as long as I have been into films, and um, have not seen it. So we got Cat People, Suspiria, Hausu. Um, what else? Um, are we going to do, okay, we don't have a specific order. I was like, are we doing cat people as your pick and house is your pick and Suspiria is my pick? Is that what we're doing? But yeah, I don't, I think this we're just kind of more agreeing on. I mean, if I'm doing an additional pick, I might do suicide circle, but, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Put that on there. Put that on there. Put okay. that on there. Um. Um. We could do. Uh, it's not scary enough. I would do. We could just. I was gonna say Pan's Labyrinth because you have. I don't think you'd seen it, and it's one of my favorite no, I've movies. S- I've seen Pan's Labyrinth. That's one oh, of the, there was there was some one of other the few like, that I've seen from from him. Um, let me, did I pin? No, I, I, I feel like I messaged you like Halloween movie ideas for stairwells at some point, but we've messaged on discord and line. And so it's fucking annoying to find out. Yeah. Um, also, I think we found out the last time we were looking for this, that the main conversation we had was over the phone. Um, yeah. We like found where it happened and it was specifically over the phone that we talked about it. But, um, Yeah. The one um, other thought that I have is Night of the Living Dead because I love it a lot. I haven't seen it. I'd be willing to put it on here. I was say, I was trying to think is like there another vampire movie? Can we return to our roots? Yeah. That was the only thing I was thinking about. Um, we could always do the Francis Ford Coppola one. Have you seen that one? I have not seen the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. So um, let's do that one. Okay. Yeah. Totally. Um, it I is, think I was talking. It is a bizarre movie, but I love it a lot. Um, I feel good about this. So yeah, if people go to exportaud.io/stairwellquality, you can see how we've ranked all the um, stairwells so far. You know, you can see all the other movies we've talked about on the podcast. Um, you know, if you want to just remember, like, oh, it's episode nine where they went in on Empire Strikes Back for a long time. Oh, it's episode seven where they talked about um, A Brighter Summer Day in Noi Alpinoi. You can see all that stuff on the spreadsheet. Um, 
and you can see what we've got coming up because we have suddenly planned for the next uh, seven episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so, eight episodes. Eight episodes. Eight episodes. I can count. I have a math degree. You do. It's late at night. Okokoro mm-hmm. is real. Okokoro is real. His 
Bella Lugosi's dead 